Shebna prepared his grave because he was sure that even with the certain advent of Assyrian conquest, he would be buried in his own grave. But in the end, he was not. Though Isaiah called for prayer and repentance and held forth the possibility of salvation, Shebna had ceased to believe that outlasting Assyria was possible. He was prepared to give up on Hezekiah and on Isaiah's vision of redemption. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 128, The Incredible Discovery of Shebna's Grave. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the preface to his memoir, The Revolt, Menachem Begin describes how, as he sat in Soviet prison, his interrogator told him that the notion that Zionism could achieve its aims was impossible. Begin tells us as follows, quote, During these long nights of interrogation, the young officer told me, Zionism in all its forms is a farce and a deception, a puppet show. It's not true that you aim to set up a Jewish state in Palestine or that you intend to bring millions of Jews there. Both these aims are utterly impracticable, and the Zionist leaders are perfectly well aware of it. This talk of a state conceals the true purpose of Zionism, which is to divert the Jewish youth from the ranks of the revolution in Europe and put them at the disposal of British imperialism in the Middle East. That's the kernel of Zionism. All the rest is an artificial shell deliberately made to deceive. As for you, Menachem Wolfovich, either you know the truth and are one of the deliberate deceivers serving Great Britain and the international bourgeoisie, or you're one of the dupes helping to divert the masses from their duty of fighting here, yes here, against exploitation. In either case, your guilt is heavy indeed. Bacon continues, I tried to show the error of his contentions, to explain that the Jewish urge to return to Eretz Israel was very deep and very real. How could it be a mere camouflage if it had been maintained by Jews for almost 2,000 years from generation to generation, going back centuries before capitalism and socialism had been dreamt of? How could Zionism be nothing but a farce when its foundations lay in the spiritual connection between the Jew and Eretz Israel and it expressed itself in the prayers and individual self-sacrifice of millions? In our own times, had not thousands given up wealth and comfort, university studies, brilliant careers, in order to become common laborers in Eretz Israel? End quote. And yet, as Begin tells us further, none of this swayed the Soviet interrogator. Millions of Jews scattered for millennia suddenly returned to the Holy Land? Impossible. Impracticable. The passage reminded me of the conclusion of the wonderful children's book that we have previously cited, The Phantom Tobuth, where the boy named Milo returns from his glorious quest and is told new information by the two rulers of the land, the king of Dictionopolis and the mathemagician of Digitopolis. The king says, quote, There was one very important thing about your quest that we couldn't discuss until you returned. I remember, said Milo eagerly. Tell me now. It was impossible, said the king, looking at the mathemagician. Completely impossible. But if we told you then, you might not have gone. And as you've discovered, so many things are possible just as long as you don't know they're impossible. End quote. Begin in prison stubbornly believed in the impossible made possible, and he lived it in his life. But the Soviet interrogator was not the first to question the possibility, the practicability of Jewish salvation and restoration in Eretz Yisrael. The question seems to have been put forth in some form by others in the past. In fact, our passages in Isaiah, combined with an absolutely incredible artifact in the British Museum, allow us to re-experience how this occurred and also to marvel at the miracle that is Jewish history. Following the messianic visions that we discussed yesterday, Isaiah's book turns to his prediction of the descent of Sancherev's Assyrian army on Judah and Jerusalem in the age of Hezekiah. Chapter 22, verse 7. And it shall come to pass that thy choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And he discovered the covering of Judah, and thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. 
Isaiah further paints a picture of the strategic measures taken by Jerusalem to prepare for the siege, the diversion of the Gihon Spring, which we have previously discussed, and the extension of Jerusalem's wall, which we shall discuss next week. But he also notes that given that Assyria has in the past assaulted all, conquered all, destroyed all, the residents of the sacred city ought to beseech the God of Israel for salvation, to fast, to pray, to repent. But Isaiah says they will not do this. Chapter 22, verse 9. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Thus Isaiah describes at Jerusalem, partying rather than praying. Of course, as we have seen in the book of Kings, and as Isaiah will himself tell us later on, the king will himself pray, and Jerusalem will be saved. But this has not yet occurred. And suddenly, in the midst of his prophecies, as an embodiment of the improper perspective taken by some Jerusalemites, Isaiah speaks of a steward over the household of Hezekiah by the name of Shebna, who had built himself a magnificent grave for when he died, apparently unconcerned that Assyria might take him into exile. God sternly informs Shebna that he would not be buried in that grave. Chapter 22, verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasure, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here? That thou hast hewed thee a sepulchre here, as he that heweth him out of a sepulchre on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house and I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. Now here, ladies and gentlemen, is what is so incredible. And again here I draw on Professor Fant and Reddish's excellent book about the lost treasures of the Bible. In 1870, Clermont the man who, as we have previously discussed, was involved in the finding of the Mesha steel, excavated a series of Israelite graves in ancient Jerusalem. There he cut off a stone bearing an inscription from an area of graves that had belonged to the First Temple period and shipped it to London. Almost all of the words in the inscription can be read, but the name of the person for whom the grave had been prepared had the first part of the name cut off. Only the last two syllables are there. The syllable Ya and then the syllable Hu, which together will mark a reference to God. The inscription read, This is the sepulcher of blank and then Ya and then Hu, who is over the house. There is no silver and no gold here, but his bones and the bones of his maidservant with him. Cursed be the man who will open this. The letter style in the inscription matches those of an artifact we have already studied, found in the area to which our own passage in Isaiah implicitly refers, the plaque of the tunnel from Hezekiah's Jerusalem. Therefore, most scholars agree that this inscription is referring to the grave of the very same Shebna. Many Israelites had names that were usually used in shortened fashion and then had a theotropic version with God referenced at the end. For example, the king is Chizkiah, but also Chizkiyahu. Jeremiah is Yirmiah and Yirmiyahu. So this man, the man we know to be over the house during the period of Hezekiah, 
would be Shebna, whose full name was Shebna Yahu. This, then, is the inscription of the man referenced in Isaiah's prophecies, a man who prepared for himself a glorious grave and who God guaranteed would not be buried there. But why was Shebna singled out by Isaiah? What was so wrong about preparing and adorning his grave in advance? Many answers have been offered. But for the Talmud, Shebna's crime was lack of loyalty to his people, lack of faith in Israel's future. He was someone who had assumed that there was no way that Judea could outlive the Assyrian attack. And so, according to the Talmud, he sought to reach out to the Assyrians. The Talmud writes, and this is the Sepharia translation, quote, When Sancherov came and besieged Jerusalem, Shebna wrote a note, which he shot on an arrow, into the enemy's camp, declaring, Shebna and his followers are willing to conclude peace. Hezekiah and his followers are not. End quote. Thus, the Talmud explains, Shebna prepared his grave because he was sure that even with the certain advent of Assyrian conquest, he would be buried in his own grave. But in the end, he was not. In the Talmudic understanding, in other words, though Isaiah called for prayer and repentance and held forth the possibility of salvation, Shebna had ceased to believe that outlasting Assyria was possible. He was prepared to give up on Hezekiah and on Isaiah's vision of redemption. And thus God informs Shebna that ultimately salvation will come, but you will not be part of it. It is striking, therefore, to ponder the artifact that is now in the collection of the British Museum, Shebna's grave inscription. All the letters are there, but now only his name is missing. One is reminded of the book of Ruth, where the redemption of the family discussed in the story fell, first and foremost, not to the hero Boaz, but to another. But because this man did not have the same loyalty and the same faith in the family's future, that man's name is denied to us. He remains, for the book of Ruth, only Plony Almoni, which is the biblical version of so-and-so. For his lack of loyalty to his family, for his lack of faith in his family, his own name is lost. And here we have Shebna. Now every part of his inscription can be seen, but his own name is lost forever from the plaque that he had originally prepared. Only the last few letters, the syllables that reference God, these endure. So too, through God, the Jewish people endure. The Jewish people outlast Assyria. And, as Isaiah will tell us, they will do so in a fashion which no one could have imagined. The instantaneous death of an entire army, 185,000 strong. Of course, for just a moment deep in our hearts, we can imagine Shebna's perspective. After all, never before had an empire wrought destruction the way Assyria had. And not since the splitting of the sea in Egypt had an entire army intent on destroying Israel been itself entirely destroyed. How could the Jewish people survive the Assyrian siege? How could they overcome it? We can imagine for a moment those who would instinctively assume that Jews had to give up and prepare for Assyrian subjugation, thinking that there was no possibility of an independent Jewish future in the land of Israel. The ten northern tribes had fallen. Samaria was no more. How could Jerusalem survive as a proud Jewish capital? And when we think about it, ladies and gentlemen, we realize that this, in a sense, is precisely the perspective put forward thousands of years later from a representative of a modern version of Assyria, the Soviet Union, a perspective put forward by Begin's interrogator. And when Begin heard these words from the Soviets, we could perhaps have understood had Begin for a moment given up hope. After all, he found himself at that time in one of the most terrible moments of Jewish history. And yet Begin never gave up hope. At the end of his preface to the revolt, Begin describes how suddenly in Soviet prison, some of the prisoners were woken up and told to get ready to leave. The Soviet Union was at war with Germany, and these prisoners were being sent to fight. He prepared to depart and writes, quote, 
We were called from our cells, but this time it was daylight, and told to collect our things. We bundled up our belongings, went through various questionings and registrations, and were then packed into a small black car. There was room for three, perhaps four in the car. We were over a dozen. One man started shouting that he could not breathe. What exaggeration. The human animal is one of the strongest of creatures. He is not easily smothered. The drive in the car was uncomfortable, it is true, but it did not last long. From the prison to the railway station, perhaps 15 minutes. End quote. Begin then concludes by describing what one of his fellow Jews whispered to him. Quote, and when the gates of the prison were opened and the car slid out into the deserted street, somebody whispered, this is the beginning of the journey to Eretz Israel. Impracticable faith? Maybe. Yet faith is perhaps stronger than reality. Faith itself creates reality. End quote. Faith is stronger than reality. And this faith, I think, is easier to achieve if you study history and see how, for the Jewish people, in civilization after civilization, generation after generation, faith was stronger than reality. And in the end, faith itself created reality. Ladies and gentlemen, we can find this faith at the British Museum by pondering the grave of Shebna and what a miracle it is to be a Jew today. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.